Welcome to this edition of the Breathe Easy podcast uh, brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. Uh, today we're going to talk about Prader-Willi syndrome, and uh, there's so much to that uh, that we can to talk talk about, but we're going to talk about sleep problems, pulmonary problems, uh, and growth hormone uh, in these children. So I'm joined today by two guests. Uh, Dr. Carolyn Okari uh, is a pediatric pulmonologist and sleep physician at Stanford. And Dr. Jen Miller is a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of Florida, uh, and she's widely recognized for her work in examining the effects of growth hormone treatment on the health of children with Prader-Willi. So uh, welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. So, uh, Carolyn, why don't we start with you? Um, Can you talk a little bit about uh, when you were seeing a child with Prader-Willi syndrome in your pulmonary sleep clinic? What... Uh, problems are you thinking about? Uh, what common sleep problems or pulmonary issues uh, creep up and, and are you asking and looking for? Great. Yeah, great question. So um, even just to take a brief second to say, Prader-Willi, um, for those who know, it's a genetic disorder. It can affect growth, appetite, cognitive function, behavior. Um, and uh, patients actually first present often in the uh, NICU or you know as neonates with hypotonia and failure to thrive. Um, so oftentimes, um, they're kind of first identified as the, the baby who's a little bit floppy, breathing a little bit fast um, for an unknown reason. Um, so oftentimes, uh, they can have, um, uh, they're at an increased risk for sleep-disordered breathing, both obstructive apnea as well as central. Um, but a little, some, they have some unique ventilatory characteristics. So one thing is that they have an abnormally function, a functioning hypoxic ventilatory response system and a hypercapnic ventilatory response system, which just means normally in, in response to hypoxia or low oxygen or hypercarbia or high CO2, um, the carotid bodies will signal the increased tidal volume or increased respiratory rate. But patients with Prader-Willi, they tend to have an absent or blunted response, or they just don't respond effectively. Some even have a paradoxical reaction, will have an incre- decreased min- minute ventilation in response to hypoxia or, or hypercarbia. So, um, that alone, I think, is something to, to think about. Um, as they're, when they're young in the neonatal period, they tend to have uh, central sleep apnea. And this is where you have a central apnea index of greater than five per hour, and you have oxygen desaturations. Uh, and this is uh, attributed to that um, absent or blunted reaction that I just talked about. Um, central apnea is most commonly seen in children who are less than two years of age. So as they get older, this becomes less of a problem. Um, one of the things that we do see in kids with Prader-Willi, though, is that they have this uh, obsession with food or hyperphagia. So they often uh, can lead to obesity uh, due to excess calories. Um, so then you see a lot of the problems of increased uh, obstructive sleep apnea that you um, expect to see with obesity. Um, so I think that's usually, I think, what brings a lot of those patients to the sleep center is a lot of people recognize the obesity and um, want them evaluated with a sleep study. Um, but it's not just the obesity, it's actually also their craniofacial features. They tend to have a narrow nasal bridge and a, more of a narrow airway that also increases their risk for, for sleep apnea as well. Um, the prevalence of sleep apnea in Prader-Willi patients is about 80% compared to 2 to 3% of the general population, so it's, it's quite prevalent. Um, it's, it's fascinating because they can have so, you know, so many different sleep problems, both obstructive or central sleep apnea, and it, how it changes mm-hmm. with age. 
uh, and uh, there are probably a lot of reasons for that. But And then as they get older, they can have hypersomnia. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Can right. I interrupt yeah, for that's... one second? I apologize. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, so one of the things that I'm seeing clinically in these patients is that um, they often now are developing new onset or, or recurrence of their central sleep apnea, specifically after they've had a tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy for right. obstructive sleep apnea. So they're still on the growth hormone, um, which is, you know, I mean, has been shown to improve that um, hypercapnic response. But um, I, I am just wondering if you have any thoughts about why that would occur. You know, um, that, that's, a, that's a really great question. And I don't really know if the literature has really bore out why that happens. Um, the way I think about it is um, in, I think if uh, any kid you have, you've treated sleep apnea and then you've relieved their obstruction, whatever way, either by surgery, tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy, or even by using CPAP, sometimes you can see some central apnea. So it'd be interesting to know how long it persists. Is it um, almost similar to that treatment emergent central sleep apnea we see in kids who start path therapy, kids and adults who start path therapy? Um, and is it just the fact that they, they do continue to have this hypoxic and hypercarbic um, ventilatory response deficiency that maybe it just is more pronounced in them? Um, that's, that's actually a really good uh, thing that I'd like to explore more, but um, that, that's my initial thought of, as to why that might be happening. And thank you. It's just, uh, you know, I, we're seeing it more and more commonly these days in like the mm -hmm. three to six-year-old group. And, mm -hmm. you know, and typically they are kids who were on oxygen for central sleep apnea when they were babies. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And then we're off oxygen and, and normal, you know, doing well with their breathing and then went to preschool or to kindergarten or whatever and got obstructive sleep apnea, you know, due to the combination of the growth hormone therapy plus, you know, respiratory infections and the narrow airways and, you know, you're blocking them up with the tonsils and adenoids with that combination. So you take the tonsils and adenoids out, it seems to be, I mean, a fairly short term phenomenon of the obstructive sleep apnea, but um, but then, you know, when we restudy them, which, you know, is recommended after the tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy, the obstructive is better, but the central is worse, um, quite significantly worse, and a lot of them are, are ending up on PAP therapy, and so um, it's, it's one of those things that I'm seeing a lot more, and so parents ask about it, and I just didn't know the answer. And you brought up something that, you know, you deal with and we deal with in the sleep clinic as well, which is... Really commonly, you know, they, these kids have symptoms of sleep apnea. We get the sleep study. It shows some sleep apnea. Many times they're already on growth hormone therapy because that has a lot of benefits for them. Uh, gosh, uh, then you're kind of in a predicament. Uh, do you continue it? Do you pause mm -hmm. it? Uh, what What are your thoughts about that? So I never stop it. Um, I actually continue it. I think that, you know, growth hormone being on board if you have to have a surgery is actually really beneficial for these kids because they're stronger. They have better pulmonary reserve. Um, they tend to do better with um, extubation after surgery um, when they've been on growth hormone. Now, I stop it during the time of the surgery, of course, but um, but I don't stop it because of the sleep apnea. Um, you know, I have always... You know, people talk about death from sleep apnea, and I've always thought, and and I could be wrong, that that is a long-term phenomenon. That you're you have a higher relative risk of sudden death with obstructive sleep apnea when it's gone on for a long period of time, um, not when it just starts. You know, and you've got some severe sleep apnea. Um, 
So I never stop it. And the kids with probably, you know, when they get a respiratory infection, if you do a sleep study when they've got a respiratory infection, it is horrific. I mean, they completely decompensate during sleep when they've got a stuffy nose. Um, they just, they can't handle it. They don't, um, I don't know why, but I mean, it's just, it's really terrible. You can see, you know, just hundreds of obstructive sleep apneas per hour um, when they've got RSV or something like that. And I think it explains, you know, why they end up in the hospital so frequently when they have respiratory infections and why respiratory infections are the number one cause of death in the syndrome. But that being said, that's the case with or without growth hormone that respiratory infections cause the decompensation. Um, I think the growth hormone being on board, like I said, really helps them in the situation of having to have a surgery. They just seem to recover more quickly. They're able to cough out their secretions a little bit better, and they're able to be extubated a little bit more quickly. And, and you know, that, just to add on to that, that would go with, um, you know, what we see is that patients with Prader-Willi, um, they do have increased uh, anterior posterior tongue-based collapse, right? So we already know that it's mm -hmm. not just their tonsils, not just their adenoids, but their actual tone is just uh, contributing to it. So um, I'm, I'm thinking you already have a narrow airway, you have low tone, and then you add a, a inflammation from a cold on top of that. I think that's probably why we see them do worse, which, which is why also I think growth hormone, which improves that tone, probably really helps them uh, recover better. And I would agree. Our, our listeners kind of review the history of uh, why is this a concern, uh, the combination of sleep apnea, growth hormone, and, in children with Prader-Willi? Uh, sure, absolutely. So um, growth hormone was FDA-approved for use in Prader-Willi in 2000, and everybody was prescribing growth hormone at that time. I mean, I as we started to look into this issue in 2003, um, we realized that growth hormone was being prescribed by family practitioners, by um, by pediatricians, by everybody. And so there was not a lot of really close follow-up or, or these people didn't necessarily know how to follow the growth hormone treatment and what side effects to look for. So it became an issue because Urs Eiholzer in Sweden first um, had a patient who was four years old um, he had started growth hormone therapy about four months prior to his death and then passed away in his sleep. And so the thought was, oh, my gosh, you know, maybe he got obstructive sleep apnea because the growth hormone grew his tonsils and adenoids, and that's why he passed away. But it was one case. And then in 2002, there actually the Pfizer Bridge Program, Genotropin, had FDA approval for treatment of Prader-Willi syndrome. So they were keeping a log of people with Prader-Willi syndrome who were being treated with genotropin growth hormone. And there were reports of about 10 deaths throughout the world. Um, and again, these sudden deaths were um, relatively short time into treatment. So within the first nine months of therapy, they were at night and and the kids all had a respiratory infection at the time um, when they passed away. The majority were young. They were under two years of age. Um, or if they were older, they were morbidly obese. And um, and so that, of course, you know, can contribute to the sleep apnea, as we've already discussed. And then the, the biggest thing was that the great majority of them had a respiratory infection at the time of their death. And so, so that was where this all started, was that we kind of went with, with Dr. Eiholzer's assumption that, oh my gosh, it happened at night, they were sick, they were on, they had just started growth hormone. That combination, you know, enlarged their tonsils and adenoids and probably caused them to have 
sudden death from sleep apnea at night. And so everybody stopped prescribing growth hormone for a long time. Um, and we, and as well as other groups, looked into it. And really what the findings were, um, were that it actually, for most individuals with Prada-Willi, it actually um, has, as has been mentioned before, it decreases the risk of sleep apnea. It decreases the obstructive sleep apnea, and it decreases the central sleep apnea, um, you know, through the mechanisms um, that we've already kind of discussed. And so... Um, so that that was reassuring for many people, but but a lot of endocrinologists still are very very concerned about the risk of sudden death um, in Prader-Willi syndrome with growth hormone, and still, you know, believe that growth hormone worsens sleep apnea for most people with Prader-Willi syndrome. Uh, so how is that kind of fear uh, or that the, those uh, deaths from uh, almost you know? 20 years ago, influenced kind of the current recommendations, guidelines for use of growth hormone and when we should get sleep studies and uh, in these kids? So the recommendations at the time, which were written by me and some of our other colleagues, um, were to um, do sleep studies um, before growth hormone and then somewhere between six weeks and six months after starting growth hormone therapy um, to look to make sure that the growth hormone didn't worsen either obstructive or central sleep apnea. The problem with that recommendation is that um, subsequently after we wrote that in 2006, um, there was another death, a little boy who had a respiratory infection who had literally just had a sleep study the week before he passed away, which was normal. And then he got sick with a respiratory illness and passed away in his sleep. Um, cortisol levels measured at autopsy were zero. And so the thought actually is that the death was due to central adrenal insufficiency, not actually due to the sleep apnea. Um, and so that began to be investigated and to be found to be, you know, a, a problem in a certain subset of individuals with Prader-Willi syndrome. And so, um, so we don't know from those early deaths, was it central adrenal insufficiency? Because again, they mostly all had respiratory infections. Was it growth hormone therapy um, that truly caused the problem with, with the sleep apnea? Um, was it a combination of both? We, we really don't know. But that's how the recommendations came to be. But unfortunately, with the knowledge that, you know, that you can have a normal sleep study and still pass away the next week when you get sick, um, was to me evidence that maybe these sleep studies are not as necessary as we think they are just to look at to see the response of the sleep disorder breathing to the growth hormone therapy that early on, that maybe we should be reserving the sleep studies for kids that have worsening of their excessive daytime sleepiness or adults that do, um, you know, people who are snoring, who are waking up really early in the morning, which is a very common problem in Prader-Willi, who, you know, are having behavioral problems, you know, or attention problems. Um, you know, often that's attributed to Prader-Willi, but it, it often is, as we see in the general population, due to poor sleep. Um, and so I think that, you know, we may be using the sleep studies currently not in necessarily the best way. When we're using them for screening, I don't know what we're actually learning at the time, you know, because just because you have a normal sleep study after starting growth hormone doesn't necessarily mean you're safe when you go to sleep at night if you have a respiratory infection. That's interesting. So my next question to you is, when are you going to write the next set of guidelines? Uh, yeah, you guys want to write <laughs> it? We should write it. <laughs> uh, and, and you brought up another really important point, which is 
these kids can have other, and, and young adults can have other sleep disorders beyond sleep disorder breathing. Uh, right. So, you know, and we, we see that. Uh, Carolyn, uh, can you kind of, uh, what's your experience with, with hypersomnia in children with Pratt or Willie? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, great. Um, so we do find that there are yeah, non-respiratory sleep complications in people with Prader-Willi. So there is hypersomnia that is not attributed to sleep disordered breathing um, in patients who are getting enough sleep, who are getting you know what we think to be good quality sleep, and they can still have this daytime somnolence that um, is otherwise unexplained. Um, and so the, the etiology of this um, is thought to be somewhat multi, multifactorial. So uh, you, you talked a little bit about the hypothalamic dysfunction. You kind of alluded to that with um, adrenal hypothyroid, uh, hypothyroidism, um, defects in the adrenal response. So they can just be uh, more tired due to, to that hypothalamic dysfunction. Um, another thing that we can also see is uh, this narcolepsy-like phenotype, which I think you uh, kind of alluded to um, earlier, um, in which the hypersomnia persists despite despite the good quality and quantity of sleep. And some of these patients can even have cataplexy, which is a sudden loss of muscle tone triggered by strong emotion or laughter. Um, and the studies uh, have done in the past where they did um, lumbar punctures on these kids did find that they did have decreased levels of hypocretin or orexin actually in their cerebral spinal fluid. Um, so that's a, a subset of, of patients. I don't know if we know exactly what percentage of all patients with Prader-Willi uh, have this phenotype, but it's something to think about if you feel like you've you know, done the sleep study, you or you've treated the sleep apnea, um, and you feel like you're uh, out of other answers. I think thinking about just um, idiopathic hypersomnia or hypersomnia related to hypocretin erection deficiency might be what's what's causing the issue. Perfect. Um, and to diagnose this, I think um, it's the multiple, you know, the MSLT multiple sleep latency test um, in young children. I know it's people, you know, it's, we're not unsure really what, how effective or sensitive it is, but um, I think generally people will say do a sleep study, do an MSLT to follow, look for a uh, short sleep latency, look for a short um, for the sleep onset REM period. You don't t- tend to do the lumbar puncture. So I would say that even with that information, you know, a lot of these patients on MSLT don't have, well, not a lot, a, a proportion of these patients on MSLT do not have um, sleep onset REM, but they do fall asleep. Yeah. You know, I mean, they still fall asleep five out of five naps, which is not normal, you know, and so, um, but it's not narcolepsy. It's just Mm -hmm. excessive sleepiness. Exactly. Exactly. And I still haven't figured that out, like what causes that um, if it's not erection because it's not narcolepsy and it's not obstructive or central sleep apnea, you know, why are they so darn tired all the time? Yeah, I think that's something that we still need to further explore. I think there's there's theories, but you're right. I, I don't think it's been fully fully vetted yet. Anything else that either of you would like to add uh, for our listeners about Prader-Willi, things that they should know as they're caring for these children? Well, I was just going to add, so um, I, I mentioned about in the neonatal period, um, when kids are up to, to two years of age, they uh, tend to have central apnea, and one of the treatments uh, for that is actually supplemental oxygen, um, in part to um, treat the hypoxia that they tend to have. But um, the thought is also it um, helps regulate their breathing a little bit too. So it's actually been found not to just treat the uh, hypoxia, but actually treat and reduce the number of central apneas they have. So that's a, a treatment that you can do for children of that age. And then as they get older and if they develop more obstructive sleep apnea, I think um, just the standard treatments that we do, so considering them for tonsillectomy, adenoidectomy, 
um, and CPAP and bilevel. And I even think for our older kids who are especially obese, thinking about um, AVAPS um, mode, the average volume assured pressure support, um, if they have more of a restrictive lung physiology, might be something to consider as well. Okay, so one thing is, you know, um, there is a global PWS registry where parents can self-report mm. things. And one of the questions that is asked is, does your child have a diagnosis of of sleep apnea, um, you know, central or obstructive, and, and have they been prescribed CPAP or BiPAP um, to treat this? And if so, are they using it? And and unfortunately, much like the general population, you know, greater than 50% are not using it at all, uh, even though it's been prescribed. And and also a huge number are, if they're using it, they're not using it as prescribed. They're taking it off after an hour or something, you know, during the night. Um, so, so while I think that it's definitely a treatment that has to be considered, just like it has to be considered in the general population, if you find sleep apnea in this population, it's not a super effective treatment. These kids do have a lot of sensory issues, which can cause problems with them actually, you know, having compliance with CPAP or BiPAP. Um, but also, you know, they just, you know, they're kids and they don't have good compliance with it. So, um, so I think that, you know, has something that we has to be something we need to address. If you use it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, I know that's exactly. true. Being very patient, trying to troubleshoot where you can. Um, absolutely, it's it's a, it can be tough. Absolutely. And so, you know, and the last thing I'd like to add, you know, is that I personally feel that sleep apnea on a sleep study should not be considered a contraindication to growth hormone therapy because I do think, as we've discussed, that sleep disorder breathing can respond in a positive way to growth hormone therapy. And so I think, you know, as you said, new guidelines need to be written for when to do a sleep study and also what to do with the information on that sleep study when you get it. We were talking about increased incidence of hypersomnia in some set of uh, patients with Prader-Willi um, that is not caused by uh, poor quality sleep, not caused by poor quantity sleep. So it's been found actually in this population that they can benefit from stimulants, so including central nervous uh, stimulants like modafinil or armodafinil um, have been uh, effective in this population. It can be used in kids quite young, um, so even um, kids uh, less than school age. So that's just something to consider. I, I would agree with that. And um, my personal favorites are ProVigil or NuVigil, um, just because they work in the hypothalamus at the erection <laughs> receptors, um, which is where we think some of the problem may lie. Um, the biggest problem with other stimulants is that because they can increase anxiety-like symptoms, we do often see side effects from, from a more typical stimulant um, medication. And so like things like increased skin picking, increased agitation, you know, increased behaviors. And so while I, the stimulants can be very effective, it is one thing that I always warn the parents about, that there could be some unintended consequences of those stimulants that we have to be aware of and, and switch to a different class of stimulant if those things occur. Agree. I think my, my first choice tends to be the new vigil, pro vigil. Sometimes it requires a little bit uh, a prior author, a little bit more of a um, fighting for it for your patient, but I think it's well worth it. Well, again, I want to thank uh, both of you for calling in. I've, as always, I learn a lot every time I, uh, I do one of these and I listen to uh, kind of the world experts uh, in a various topic. So uh, thank you again, and we will uh, hear you all next month. Have a nice one.